So who's read the readings this week? Ooh, a few. Now, I don't know why every um, person who comes up here to speak asks that, but I do know why I do. Um, Because there's a lot here to consider. There's two whole chapters and there's a lot going on. And although Andy did a really superb job last week of sort of telling the story, I think it might take a 20-minute talk for me to praise what there is in the readings this week. So that's why I was rather hoping you've all read it. But anyway, not to matter... (laughs) I will do a bit of a pracy. Do you know, it does bless the speaker if you've read the readings, and it blesses you, I think, as you listen to what's being taught on. Uh, we have a high view of Scripture in River Marlow, and we are keen that we are all reading the Word together. So this one has been... I found this quite tough preparing this. Um, perhaps the hardest brief I've had. Uh, do you ever find it hard to read the Bible? Bits of the Bible hard to read? Yeah, not just me. Good. Um, and I have to admit that at times that when it feels hard, that makes me avoid reading it. Anybody else do that? Um, and, uh, and maybe just skip over the difficult bits. But you know what? You can't do that when you're the speaker, can you? <laughs> so, um, so I have been reading and reading and wrestling with it. And there is so much here. And um, if you want more than I cover, then I absolutely recommend um, this book, Tom Wright, for everyone. It's a really good commentary on all the different verses. So I've read and I've reread and I've prayed and I've fasted and um, I've tried to read. And I'm, I'm just going to try and take you on a journey this morning of how I've, how I've read and how I've then understood. I've tried to read it as a whole, not just sort of bits and stories and like we're often taught, and I think as children we're often taught stories, um, but I've been trying to read it as a whole, as a whole part of a whole narrative, thinking about the overarching whole narrative of the Bible, in fact, the whole story. Um, so it's written to be a whole, so I've been wrestling with it. And I've been knowing then that there are several overarching themes that Mark revisits over and over. And I've been knowing that Mark has chosen and combine the stories or episodes that he has for a reason to make points. Jesus lived for, or Jesus' ministry was three years. There's no way there's just three, there's three years' worth of stuff here. You know, Jesus must have said and done an awful lot more, but Mark chose to put these things in here and in a particular order. So knowing that. And then the third thing I've been doing is just seeking Jesus. Jesus, what do I see about you here? What do I learn about you? How can I draw closer to you as I read your word? In the words of Greg Boyd, we worship a Jesus-looking God. We find more of God as we look at Jesus. So God, what are you showing me of you this morning? What are you showing me as I read? So last week then, and I will sort of praise you a bit here, Andy spoke brilliantly and his, his three um, points were fame, fruitfulness and focus. And for those of you who didn't hear him last week or haven't done on catch up or even for those of you who like me probably were here and now can't remember it. um, Is that just me and my menopausal head or is that others? Um, (laughs) So we're in Mark's gospel and we're nearing the end. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people were expecting him and they sang and they laid palms in front of him and it was a kingly entry of sorts. And later, Jesus intentionally overturned the tables in the temple in the court of the Gentiles. 
And it's very unlikely that that was a spontaneous gesture. Jesus had been in the temple many times. And this time, at this time, he chooses a provocative, revealing gesture. And thus that upsets and challenges the religious authorities. So leaves are well and truly rustled. Cages rattled and hackles are up. Things are heating up now. And Andy explained to us the story of the fig tree, which is one that has puzzled me over the years. And he talked about the fact that the presence of green leaves on the fig tree signaled that there would be fruit. But when Jesus went to look, there was no fruit. So he curses the tree and the leaves shrivel up. But it's not a story about a tree, is it? It's about leaves and fruit or no fruit. So whose leaves is Jesus rustling? Is it a real question? Whose leaves is he rustling here? Pharisees. Could be ours. Straight on that, Sally. The fact the Pharisees, the religious community. And what happens when religious people or the religious spirit gets ruffled or confronted or feels threatened? Any thoughts? Well, we get defensiveness, we get anger, kickback, protection of ego, and it's the same today as it was then. So things are hotting up, and as you think about the story, just think on that as you read it. So I'm going to dive in. If anybody's got their Bible here, um, please open them or, or do whatever you do with your phone to Mark chapters 12 from 13, uh, verse 13 to chapter 13 to the end. And if you drift off while I'm chattering, just, uh, just read, read away. Again, I'm not going to preach on all of this, but I'm going to give you a praise and then from that I'm then going to be sort of pulling things together. So, so Jesus, as we read at the end of chapter 11, he's returned to Jerusalem from Bethany where he was staying. He's sort of commuting in and out from his friend's house. And he's again walking in the temple courts with his disciples and followers. And we know now that the religious leaders are they're kind of out to get him. They are trying to catch him out, to build a case so they can arrest him. And so he's approached by the Jewish rulers. And these people are the chief priest, the religious scholars, elders, Pharisees, people who really support Herod and Sadducees. And they all approach him and they ask a series of questions and then we see some teaching and prophecy from Jesus. And the questions go like this. Is it proper to pay taxes to Caesar? That's a good one and uh, it's a trick question and Jesus, um, as Tom Wright says here, he fires it back over the net twice as fast as it came at him. He has a good answer for that one. And then there's a complicated question about a man with a wife and seven brothers. And in the law, if, if um, a man died and left a wife and there was a brother who could marry her, then the brother needed to marry her. And that, that was a logical good thing to do back in those days. But this story, the man has a wife, the man dies, and the brother marries the wife. But then that brother dies, so another brother marries the wife, and then that brother dies, and another. And there's seven brothers. Anyway, they all die in succession and follow the law by marrying the wife. So who will be the husband once they are all resurrected from the dead? Good question. Jesus addresses this, um, and it turns it round and and shows them that they're really looking at the wrong things. Then, in, 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 in the flow of what I'm reading, we have the greatest commandment of all, or the question is, what is the greatest commandment of all? 
Then there's, I think, a little bit more of a confusing bit about Jesus talking about David and Messiah. Um, Then, I think, and this is me saying this, but Jesus, I think, has a little bit of a rant about the religious scholars and the Pharisees. Then there's a sweet story about a widow and her offering. And then in chapter 13, we get Jesus prophesying about the temple falling down, about destruction and persecution, a detestable idol, and being ready and watching out. So what does all of this mean? So as I've said, there isn't time to go into all of it in detail, but holding it all in mind, there are some key themes And there are two key themes that have been prominent, I think, throughout this Gospel of Mark. And as as it's drawing to an end and to its conclusion, these themes are being crystallized and being more openly spoken of. They're those of kingdom and Messiah. And, of course, the two are intertwined. So who is the Messiah? (laughs) We laugh... But the Pythons were on to something. There is a muddle about who the Messiah is or or this sort of confusion or mystery. And uh, as you read your Bible, Jesus asks people often not to say who he was on various occasions. Why does he do that? I think it's because there's a clash between a traditional Jewish idea of Messiah and the Messiah who we know is Jesus. So the Jewish idea and hope is that they'll have a military messiah, if you like, another king who will save them from Roman oppression. So that's why they were excited about him coming into Jerusalem. But that's also why he came in on a donkey. You know, you see that sort of contrasting that's going on. The Jews thought the messiah would be a king descended from King David. And Jesus is descended from David. But he does not want to be misperceived, and he knows that the Jewish people, if that happened, might have tried to install him as a king, and that's not the point. He's a different Messiah, and as, as Tom Wright puts it, he's not merely David's son, a human king among other human kings, but he's in fact the Messiah. Israel's God has given himself totally, given all that he had and was. We've sung this morning about giving our all to God, but think about how God has given God's all to us. And Jesus is, is, if you like, the new temple. And the other theme that plays over and over is that of kingdom. And we, we talk a lot about this. And over and over we see stories and parables taught by Jesus that tell us of a different way. So did you ever, or do you ever play the game Opposites Day? with your kids. Anybody ever played Opposites Day? Is it only our house that played Opposites Day? Oh, no. Well, I'll have to introduce you to the idea of Opposites Day, even if it gets a bit infuriating at time, and maybe my children invented it. Basically, you say something, and then they say the opposite. So if I say, would you like a biscuit? They say, no, thank you, when they do want a biscuit. So, and so then you have to say, you don't, um, I'm not giving you a biscuit. And they say, oh, okay, and then they get a biscuit. So things like that. So everything is opposite. It's very infuriating. And eventually you say, oh, please, can we stop playing Opposites Day? Oh, no, I mean, please, can we play Opposites Day? Meaning, can we stop? Anyway. Why would you play that game? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> but it's an upside-down kingdom, and it's an opposite-day kingdom 
that we walk in. The kingdom of God doesn't value what society then or now thinks we should value. Things like status, power, individualism, acquisition of stuff, wealth, big houses, the list is endless. It's the opposite of acquisition and status. In the kingdom there is equality, not hierarchy. All are welcome in the kingdom. It's not an exclusive club. And this was shocking then, and I dare say it's shocking now to some people. And the kingdom is now. It's not about a ticket to heaven. It's about the kingdom now that we're walking and living in now, which is exciting. So Messiah, kingdom, and all these questions, they're trying to catch Jesus out. Um, But as I was sort of looking and wrestling and thinking about this, And these sort of questions are things that the disciples have asked previously as well, like can we sit at your right and left um, when you're in heaven? Who is the greatest? Um, All these sort of what-ifs. What if a man died and had no children? Should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And I thought to myself, or it suddenly came to me, that the religious people are missing the point about kingdom and Messiah. They're just missing the point. And the disciples do it too, don't they? They just keep missing the point missing the point about who Jesus truly is, what the kingdom is like, and therefore what it means to us. Just sort of missing the point. At the end of chapter 12, there's a familiar story, and it's one we often read in children's work. It's the one, I think it's called The Widow's Might, and uh, where the, the widow gives her all the pennies that she has to Jesus. Do you know, people know that story? I can, I've got a vivid picture in from my children's Bible that I must have read as a little girl of this poor hunched-up widow popping her offering in. And as a child, feeling really sorry for her and worrying that she had nothing left. And notice I was missing the point even as a child. Because here is one person, an unnamed woman, who gets it. She gets it. But as I was saying earlier, if we read the whole and we think about what Mark has placed where directly before this story and very easy to pass over actually Jesus is having this go at the religious scholars and he says I won't read it all but he says beware of the religious scholars they love to parade about in their clergy robes and be greeted with respect for appearances sake they will pray long religious prayers at the homes of widows for an offering cheating them out of their very livelihood beware of them all for they will one day be stripped of honor and the judgment they receive will be severe See, and then we get the story of the widow's offering, which is a complete different story. A destitute widow walked up and dropped in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given a larger offering than any of the wealthy. For the rich gave only out of their surplus, but she sacrificed out of her poverty and gave to God all that she had to live on, which was everything she had. So that you've got these wonderful two stories here that are contrasting. And Jesus is exposing religiosity and hypocrisy, the rustling green leaves that have no fruit, in contrast to this widow who gave her all. And giving all is how we serve Jesus, isn't it? Because that's what God has done for us. And it's interesting that Jesus criticizes hypocrisy more than anything else. He's infinitely patient with his disciples as they blunder about, getting it wrong, missing the point. And he he seems never as upset with sinners, but only with people who pretend they are not sinners. 
So in the exposing, he's revealing. He's revealing who he is and he's revealing how to follow him. So back then to the final question that I have been asking myself have I been looking this, is what have I learned of God through this? And most amusingly to me, this revelation that came to me was in chapter 13, which was the very chapter I found very difficult and have always found difficult. It's this sort of prophetic, almost a pop I can't say that word, apocalyptic chapter, which is full of disturbing prophecies where Jesus is telling the disciples who were actually sort of walking out of the temple saying, wow, look at the building, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, that's all going to be just stones. It's just going to be leveled. Um, And he talks in more detail later about it, about what's going to happen, this terrible destruction, which sounds very frightening. I certainly not like reading this. But a couple of things to notice. Firstly, and this really struck me, most of the detail in chapter 13 is spoken by Jesus to his disciples in private. So it says, later that day, looking over from the Mount of Olives, his three disciples came up to him and asked him about it. Now this, to me, feels like an intimate moment just sitting with Jesus and saying, what's going on? And Jesus talking to them. I should say that um, this, from my reading of different um, other more scholarly people than me, this isn't about the end times, the end of the world. There's pretty sound evidence that this was in fact predicting the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 67 to 70. And Mark would have known this because this is written after then. So... Jesus, knowing he's leaving, is preparing his friends for what's going to happen. And I love that. And that really struck me, that we see such gentleness here. You see, Jesus knows we will all go through difficult, tragic, sometimes devastating times. But he prepares us. He reassures us. He loves us. He's with us. He shows us the point. He shows us what's important and what's not. You know, and in this season, I just believe the Holy Spirit is ministering to us in deep gentleness, such gentleness. We felt it this morning, haven't we? There's such gentleness of the Holy Spirit in this season. So we need to receive it and dwell with it, dwell with Holy Spirit. And secondly, the thing that came to me was that Jesus doesn't leave us without an answer. It doesn't leave us on or it doesn't leave us flailing about, missing the point. How? So again, if we're thinking about this sort of text as a sort of a whole rather than bits, if you look at what's sitting right in the middle of it, and what, what is sitting right in the middle of these two chapters, there's a big clue sitting on your seat. The greatest commandments. <laughs> the greatest commandment. Which is this, isn't it? The Lord Yahweh our God is one. You are to love the Lord Yahweh your God with a passionate heart, from the depths of your soul, with your every thought and with all your strength. This is the great and supreme commandment. And the second is this. You must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. You will never find a greater commandment than these. Jesus leaves us with a solution. So I guess my questions to us this morning are just simply, are we asking the wrong questions? 
Are we worrying about irrelevant details? Are we judging others against ourselves? Are we pitting what you believe against what I believe? Do we get defensive and reactive? Are we putting on a show? Are we being green leaves with no fruit? Are we getting into interesting yet very useful theological, but yet not very useful theological debates? For example, I got completely distracted for about half an hour yesterday on some Facebook thread arguing whether angels have gender or not. Don't go there, don't start, don't start. It's not relevant, it's not important, it's not relevant. Are we um, missing the point like the disciples? We're just not seeing the Messiah right in front of us. I do think if we start being reactive and feeling and emotional, often maybe we are missing the point about something and God's saying, come on, come, talk to me, let's think about it. And what does it look like to give your all to Jesus? What does it look like not just to be, have leaves on our trees but have fruit? So I just wanted to finish and just ask us just to be quiet, prayerful for a moment. Love God, love others. Can we let God love us first? Can we let God love the Pharisee in us? Let God in, let God love you. Love God and from that place of fullness and transformation, then we love others. Jesus, help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our times when we miss the point. We get distracted and caught into the wrong places and spaces. Help us focus on on you. And thank you for teaching us. Thank you for leaving us with this great commandment. Amen. Thank you.